You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, in our wretchedness, would you help us now to see our need for you and the love that you've given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we now pray. Amen. So this week is the second half of uh, the story of David's affair with Bathsheba, which you heard the first part of last week. Um, we skipped over a few verses. I'm going to fill that space in. Uh, but uh, if you weren't here last week or if you need to be reminded, I just want to quickly remind you of the story thus far just so you can understand what's happening in the story of Nathan coming um, to convict David of his uh, sinfulness. It's one of my favorite stories of the Bible because it demonstrates the, the, the power of story to, to get a message across to someone when they can't hear it otherwise. But what has happened is David, you'll remember, is one of the first kings of united Israel and Judah, and he has had much great success before he's even become a king as a, as a, a military captain, and, and as a king, even more increasing success, the first 10 chapters of Second Samuel show us uh, that he is just, the, the success is mounting and mounting, uh, conquering other kingdoms, winning battles, and we've gotten to a point now where uh, he's in the midst of, Israel is fighting the Ammonites, which is their immediate neighbors to the east, just up the street. And because he's so successful, militarily speaking, he can now stay home and uh, and trust his uh, general Joab to lead the army. And this is where David gets in trouble, because here he's back in Jerusalem, and he's become a bit of a couch potato. Uh, And he's looking out the window, and he sees a woman uh, and has an affair with her. And as a result, her name is Bathsheba, who's the, the wife of, as we'll learn later in 2 Samuel, Uh, It says at the end of the book, uh, Uriah the Hittite, who is one of David's top 37 mighty men. One of, he's not just any man, but he's one of David's uh, most valued soldiers. And he has an affair with this man's wife, Bathsheba, who gets pregnant. And so David has Uriah come back to spend the night with Bathsheba to cover up the pregnancy. But Uriah, at the moment, is a nobler man than David and says because the uh, military is still out there doing battle, he will not do this thing that David has asked of him. So David sends Uriah back to the battlefield with the the note of his own death sentence and uh, gives it to Joab, the general, and the note says to have Uriah go to the front of the battlefield where the fighting is most intense And then when he's there, ease off so that he will be killed. And indeed, uh, he is. And that's where our story has ended last week. And um, in the, the few verses that we've skipped over to get to our passage this week, in verse 25... David tells Joab the general in another letter, he says to him, uh, um, sort of uh, ameliorating any concerns that Joab might have, he says to him about Uriah's death, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. As if to say, 
Joab, don't sweat it. Uriah probably would have died anyhow. And so what David is doing is he's rationalizing his own actions based on uh, guesswork. He's, he's speculating that Uriah probably would have died anyway. And you can contrast what David tells Joab to what the author of 2 Samuel says just two verses later, and this is at the beginning of our passage in verse 27. In his commentary, he says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. No matter what David says, the type of thing that he said to Joab, his actions have still displeased the Lord, meaning that God's laws are unchanging. They're immutable facts. God's laws are not subjective uh, statements. God's laws are objective no matter how David feels about them, whatever his opinion is. And this, so this is the conflict of the story. That's the main conflict is David's feelings on the one hand and just the, the fact of God's law on the other hand uh, are coming and together and there's the tension and it's, da- it's Nathan's job to help David understand the reality of God's moral law. And he does so, as I said, through the power of telling him the story of the man with the ewe lamb to disarm David so that he might see the truth. Um, So which of God's unchanging moral laws did David break? Most obviously from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. We could also consider these. You shall not steal, which seems to actually be the point of Nathan's story, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Four of the Ten Commandments that we can easily discern that uh, David has broken here. And through the parable, David finally sees the objective truth from God's perspective. No matter how much logic David tries to apply to the situation, he was wrong, plain and simple. He's so wrong that even if God had never given his Ten Commandments, David still would have been guilty of these charges. Let me say that again. Even if God had never given his law to Israel, David would still have been guilty of these charges. This is what Paul explains, St. Paul, at the beginning of Romans in chapters 1 and 2, that God's law is so deep-seated in all of our memories, inside of our DNA, as it were, that, uh, that most people across time and culture you'll find talk about right and wrong, even if they've never had the law, God's law explained to them. And there seems to be often quite a bit of overlap. The fact that people do this is evidence that there must be a God. If there's this type of right and wrong that we seem to collectively agree upon, then there must be a lawgiver that exists outside of time and culture. By the way, this is the, the beginning argument that the author C.S. Lewis makes in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, in the first third of his book. If you've never read Mere Christianity before, By C.S. Lewis, I recommend you put it on your bucket list and read it at least once before uh, you leave this earth Uh, because he explains with such lucidity uh, what I'm trying to get across here. In fact, the very beginning, that first third of the book, the, the book is actually three books bound together, and that first book is called uh, Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. In our age of things like hey, you do you, whatever floats your boat, 
If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Or even, you know, whatever. In an age of this kind of thinking, we, like David, cannot escape God's law bumping up against us, no matter what our opinions are. No matter how we say, you know, you do you, uh, whatever floats your boat, the reality of God's law is just plainly going to bump up against us. As Paul explains in Romans 1 also, we have traded truth about God for lies, which is exactly what Nathan helps David see in his own life, the objective truth from God's all-knowing perspective. Happily, though, this objective truth about the law has a flip side in the gospel. Yes, David sees the seriousness of his crime, But the good news is that he also sees the surprising nature of God's grace that he doesn't deserve. After David recognizes the truth and responds with a confession, Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. As I said, David must hear a story to be convicted of the truth. Well, let me tell you a story. Jesus Christ once gave a sermon that convicted everyone, everyone from Adam and Eve until you and me of murder and adultery. Everyone. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, in which he said, among other things, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, we're all Davids now. We're all Davids. Who hasn't had the type of anger that isn't just anger, but also wishes for the other person's downfall, uh, their demise in some respect? Who hasn't engaged in an act of mental unfaithfulness outside of marriage? And in our age of internet trolls and explicit material available to us, even on our phones, everywhere we go, more and more of us are guilty of these crimes even more often. You see, Jesus Christ demonstrates that the trespass against truth actually begins in the heart, at a heart level. Even if the crime isn't carried out materially speaking, in the dark we are guilty of the crime as if it had occurred in the light. Let me heap even more on here to make it even worse. Jesus explains in John's gospel to the religious leaders, to the scribes and Pharisees when talking about this, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies." So we, like David, trade the truth for a lie, disregarding God's law, but even worse than that, this corruption is not only in our hearts, but it has satanic origins. Now that I've pressed on all the wounds, 
Allow me, like Nathan, to apply the medicine. In the same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began the message with words of comfort. Even before he got to convicting everyone of murder and adultery, he begins the sermon with great words of comfort. Let me share just two of them, and there are even more than two, but let me just share two. Thankfully, there are more. First, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, fulfill them in what respect? On our behalf, those who cannot fulfill all righteousness at a heart level. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Secondly, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, mourn over what? Over our own wretchedness. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. As David says in Psalm 51, which is the poetry that he wrote, um, which is a poetic expression of the very confession that he made before Nathan and a response also to the declaration of forgiveness that Nathan gives to David that he will not die, that his sins are taken away. Psalm 51 is, uh, is an extended version of what we see in that confession here in 2 Samuel. And we see in uh, Psalm 51 that being a follower of Jesus Christ means living a life of repentance. I mentioned in uh, the beginning of my sermon that the first section of C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity about right and wrong, I'd like to read the very end of that first part of the book because, as I said, he's able to more lucidly explain anything that I try to explain. And he says, the very first sentence you'll see, he says, I've been talking about this in a roundabout way up till now. What he's meaning is he's been trying to convict everyone for 30 pages of, um, of the fact that, that we're all murderers and adulterers. The same thing that I've been trying to get across. And here he says, when I chose to get to my real subject in this roundabout way, I was not trying to play any kind of trick on you. I had a different reason. My reason was that Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I've been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you have realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state, of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law and yet also a capital P person. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. 
how God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. It is an old story, and if you want to go into it, you will no doubt consult people who have more authority to talk about it than I have. All I am doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort. Which leads me to the second thing that I can say about Psalm 51, and my final word to you, is that the gospel of grace shapes a life, a life, a full life of praise. After the confession and the understanding of his forgiveness, David says toward the end of Psalm 51, O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. I hope you know at a, a, a deep-seated place in your heart, deep down, the grace that God has given you in Jesus Christ. And if you come to grips with that, you would not be at fault to have a sort of spontaneous reaction of praise. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.